0: I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Oh, Thank
1: you so much, Sedai, so, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. Um, this is for caregivers coping with a loved one's metastatic prostate cancer, and this is part two of living with metastatic prostate cancer. So, Some of you were on the call last week, and now this is the second part. Um, and today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech and a charitable contribution from Janssen Pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical companies uh, Johnson and Johnson. I really want to thank them for their support of this program and this particular series as well. Now, um, I just want to let you know that we have over 138 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. We also have international participants from um, Austria, Canada, Denmark, Malaysia, Poland, and United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And I'd really like to um, really thank all of you for participating on the call today. Um, You're clearly a group of information seekers. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I have a few questions I would like to ask all of you. And the reason we ask you these questions is that um, we it will help us to, um, your, your responses to the questions will help us to better plan programs that best meet your needs. So I'm going to start with the first question. So those of you live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions and rate the questions. So on a scale of 1 to 5, with 1 the highest rating and 5 the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand how to care for a loved one with metastatic prostate cancer in the context of COVID-19 experience. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is: I understand the role of the caregiver on the healthcare team and how to work with the healthcare team to manage a loved one's pain, neuropathy, and discomfort. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is: I understand deciding to become a caregiver and the need stresses, and challenge rewards of caregiving. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. I understand managing family, friends, partners, and traditions in the context of COVID-19 and the role of the long-distance caregiver. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. I understand self-care, stress management, and caregiver resilience. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It will help us to best tailor our programs to meet your needs and now it's really my great pleasure to choose our first speaker and our first speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genitourinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Wall College of Cornell University. And Dr. Sloven will be addressing caring for your loved one with metastatic prostate cancer in the context of COVID-19. The important role of the caregiver with the healthcare team, working with healthcare team to manage your loved one's pain, neuropathy, and discomfort, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments to increase your benefit. Um, technology list of questions, follow-up care, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Slovan.
2: Thank you very much, Carolyn, and welcome to everyone. And my thanks to Cancer Care for providing... The opportunity to really have these little sessions where I think we can all learn from one another. I continue to learn even at my, in my dotage. It's it's always very refreshing to learn from other colleagues. And sometimes just chatting with the caregivers or the patients uh, during the Q&A has been extremely enlightening for me in terms of how to address certain issues in, in my practice. There's probably not enough time to go through every nuance here, but I'd like to think that with every issue that has befallen the world, that there is some good that comes out of it. And I would say that the one glimmer, which is both a blessing and a curse, has been the role of telemedicine, particularly as it pertains to COVID-19. With the Virus that has been assaulting everyone and people 's fears about coming into their doctors doctors offices or, or going on trips, etc, telemedicine has really revolutionized the world in terms of how we can continue to relate to our caregivers and our patients, and to provide what we continue to think is high-quality level of care. Uh, I have to say that all of us literally were thrown into the telemedicine world within 24 hours of the virus becoming rampant. It was something that uh, that was considered to be really a research question. Can we, in different practices, low-burden practices, high-burden practices, Uh, do telemedicine safely and effectively, and can we provide the necessary uh, needs and benefits to the patients and their caregivers. And within 24 hours, we learned that there was no choice. We had to. So I think it's worked out very, very well. I would say that for older patients who have a hard time coming into the city or are unable to get to institutional satellites, having continued connectivity, if you will, with their ongoing oncologic practices is extremely pivotal to their uh, physical and psychological well-being. Now, I think it's very obvious that we're not touching the patient, and I'm a type of person who feels that even if you are doing telemedicine every few months, it still is very important for the doctor to lay on hands. And the reason is, of course, that there are nuances, there are changes sometimes in blood pressure. Uh, There are abnormal heart rhythms, all of which I have picked up during a a routine oncologic visit. More importantly is having time with the patient face-to-face and their caregivers, which I think is very important in terms of just knowing that you're dealing with a team, and the team is the family member or members as well as the people who are caring for the actual uh, patient. I think the biggest uh, issue that we deal with right now is how do we really maximize the benefits that might be provided with telehealth or telemedicine uh, follow-ups. I always tell patients that if they are going to be chatting with us, it really would be very helpful to have some of the questions uh, already prepared, and not only for them or for their caregivers. I mean, what I think is most important is that caregivers need support. And the one thing I would tell every caregiver family member, whomever is on the call, you don't have to hide on the sidelines you certainly do not have to be whispering come on on the visual field so i can see you and talk and see see you as well uh very often it gets aggravating because i could be in the middle of a conversation with the patient then you hear the little hissing from the caregiver oh ask her this ask her that please everybody should feel free let the doctor let the nurse see you so that we we have a meaningful uh, interaction the other thing, in addition to having questions ready to go, it's, it's good to see the patient. I mean, we want to see the patient. We want to see the caregiver. Sometimes just looking at a person is going to give me an assessment of how they're doing because, believe it or not, when we're talking to somebody and looking at their facial gestures, that's a neurologic examination. So I'm making sure that your eyes are blinking correctly, that there's no facial droops or anything that would have me concerned, that you are experiencing a very subtle change in your uh, clinical status. Doing telemedicine has provided us with continuity of care for the most part, although, as I said, I always prefer to see a patient in real time. I think it provides us with uh, a better assessment of quality of life concerns, as though if we have an ongoing dialogue I think patients and their caregivers are more willing to discuss how how things have been. And I'd like to bring up one point that I think people tend to forget is this idea that when we talk about supporting people uh, throughout their disease, uh, it, it means that we really want to be involved from for every aspect of your cancer, whether it's pain control, psychological support, uh, transportation support, anything that would enhance your quality of life and that of the people who support you should be addressed. One of the uh, concerns that we often have is that... um, people don't realize, there's something called palliative care, and it has the most god-awful, pardon my expression, uh, the connotation. Uh, very often, if you talk to people about palliative care and, and how to support them, they think that this is the end of the road, and that's why they're being offered some sort of support. I think it's extremely important for everybody to understand that palliative care is specialized medical care in patients who are living with an illness, no matter what they're diagnosis is or the stage of the disease. So please hear what I just said, no matter what the disease or the stage of the disease. So someone who may be newly diagnosed or previously diagnosed, they have some pain, Uh, they're having some itching that has nothing to do with their cancer. We have a team approach. We have palliative care that can follow somebody for any potential problem that can ensue for the next 15 or 20 or 25 or even 30 years of being uh, with their cancer. So we need to know when we talk to you on the telemedicine what's going on? What would make your life better? What would make you feel better? Is it a pain issue? Is it that you have indigestion from a diet problem? You know, you can't take certain foods? Well, we would certainly have palliative care be involved to see if they can make the appropriate referral to a gastroenterologist. It doesn't have to be cancer-related, but understand that from the moment you walk in, that we have resources that will take the burden sometimes off the doctor and help you directly where you don't have to call the doctor. You call this group of of specialists who say, oh, okay, let's have you see this person or that one. So please be advised that that's really what we mean by palliative care. It does not have a negative connotation. It's what we do to keep everybody up and running throughout their disease treatment. Now, when we're doing telemedicine, of course, just as if we were with you, we are writing notes the notes document pertinent physical findings when we see you that includes blood pressure and heart rate and weight height etc when we do telemedicine it's rather hard to do that but we do want to document any and all of our conversation and what we think we're seeing with you now when we do telemedicine and we write the notes whether we're seeing you or talking to you, documentation is very important. It's not necessarily for medical legal reasons. I rely on my notes to get an assessment of how I viewed the person at the last meeting or whether the the caregiver had issues that I need to follow up on and provide additional support or transfer to a different physician to help address whatever the ongoing issue is. Lately, we now have what we call open notes. And that means that if you look online uh, at your facility, you can actually see the doctor's notes. Uh, Very often, they are very straightforward. Uh, they will document the discussion that may have been held between you, the patient, the family members, caregivers, etc. But every now and then, you may take a look at laboratories that are now online uh, or, or imaging results, and people get extremely agitated. You know, I find it very difficult sometimes because patients can sometimes see scan results before I do. They sometimes can see... Uh, Laboratory results before I do, and arrows go up and arrows go down. It's my job. To review these and put them into the appropriate context so that you have an understanding. Ninety-five percent of the time, the up and the downs on the arrows are not significant. A lot of the blood tests that we do are automated, so there is always a little bit of natural error that goes through that may take your little normal laboratory off by a tenth of a point or a tenth of a nanogram. The same thing is true with uh, documentation. You know, we try to get the most information sometimes patients may notice that there is a uh, an error in the medical record please do feel free to let us know because In the course of the day, sometimes a patient or a family member may misspeak. Sometimes I mishear. And so it's important to take a look. But our reason for putting it online is to give you comfort and also to allow you access that if we're not sending all your notes out appropriately to your private doctors, you have those notes available for your own records. Lastly, I'd like to deal with just the concept of treating patients With metastatic prostate cancer in the context of COVID-19, it is very hard to be a caregiver these days, particularly if you're feeling isolated. And it is true that not every person has a computer. It is very true that not every person has an iPhone. And you should, as a caregiver or as a patient or both, not be fearful about indicating to the doctor or the doctor's office that you are not equipped to participate in that type of uh, technology, but still would like the kind of care that could be provided by a phone call or even a visit. So please do not be fearful of of letting people know your circumstance. Also, COVID-19 is not a reason to get your treatment. It is not a reason not to give chemotherapy. We treat people very safely under the auspices of COVID-19 with chemotherapy without any undue issues. I think the most important takeaway that I can offer to you right now is that as part of palliative care, we take care of everybody, and that includes the caregiver. Clearly, it's very hard to be a caregiver in today's world when you're feeling isolated uh, and having to deal with a patient's pain or numbness and tingling from neuropathy or just overall the technology that's out there. You should feel free to reach out to your physician's office do not hesitate because there are other ways that we can serve you that will give you and provide you with the comfort and the confidence you need to continue in your role as caregiver. So thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to speak. I'm going to turn it right back to you, Carolyn. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much,
1: Dr. Slovin. That was really outstanding and and really just did a wonderful job in setting the context for today's program for all the caregivers on the call. Um, you said such really important. Gave a lot of important messages to them, and I think that's. And also, there are also, of course, patients listening as well. Um, but I think uh, just such important messages that you gave. So thank you, thank you very much. Um, I know the big questions for you during the Q and A, and our next speaker is Miss um, Allison Arati, and Miss Arati is Cancer Care uh, Caregiver Program Coordinator at Cancer Care, and um, she will be addressing deciding to become a caregiver, the unique stresses and rewards of caregiving, managing family, friends, partners, and traditions in the context of COVID-19, the long distance caregiver, and self-care and stress management suggestions and tips to promote caregiver resilience. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Arardi.
3: Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, I'm so happy to be here. Um, And so I guess I will start with just, you know, at, at the beginning of the experience, right, deciding to become a caregiver. So making this decision may often feel like it is not a choice. It's often sudden that you take on this role. So it is absolutely normal to feel like being a caregiver was put on you. Once you've had time to really process this new role and the responsibilities, I would encourage you to think about what that word means to you, what caregiver means to you. Find your voice throughout this journey. And of course, always remember to take care of yourself. It's okay if it takes some time for you and your loved one to get the hang of things. Find what what works best. Just be kind and honest about your abilities, not only with yourself, but with your loved ones. To work together. Personal responsibilities do not disappear just because you're a caregiver, so always remember to communicate with your loved one about boundaries, when you might need to take a break, or when you need to attend to your own personal affairs. With caregiving comes stress, it comes challenges, but also rewards throughout the entire cancer experience. Some common challenges that caregivers experience that might that you might also be experiencing um, can lead to stress, or financial strain, uh, workplace issues, whether that's you know taking time off um, off from work, anticipatory grief, balancing caregiver responsibilities with personal responsibilities, and burnout. Caregivers often do not recognize that they are burnt out until it feels like it's been too late. Um, signs of burnout includes getting sick more easily with the common colds or flu, difficulty concentrating, prolonged feelings of hopelessness, uh, chronic anxiety, and even impatience for the person that you are caring for. It's incredibly important for caregivers to practice self-care and reach out to their support network to help mitigate burnout. COVID-19 has also added new challenges for caregivers to navigate. Caregivers are continuing to manage all of the challenges that I mentioned previously, but are now doing so during a pandemic. Caregivers have the added stress to keep themselves and their loved ones safe, and they do so by disinfecting high touch surfaces, uh, wearing masks, washing your hands, social distancing, um, and, as we are you know, continuing to navigate this kind of COVID-19 world, caregiving during special occasions like birthdays, uh, holidays, anniversaries can be really challenging now, but there are ways to manage these days the best that you can. You can start with talking with your loved one's medical team about what is safe and feasible. You and your loved one may also want to potentially adjust expectations and even establish new traditions talking with your loved ones about what this day means to them, and also enjoy the moments that you do get to spend together, even if it looks or feels different. If your loved one is not comfortable spending a special occasion with a large number of people, caregivers should do their best to respect that decision, but also reflect on their feelings in a safe space. Caregivers and patients can work together to adjust or create those new traditions. And the pressure to keep up with traditions can be really heavy, so give yourself that permission to create new ones. This is also a great time to take advantage of technology so you can still connect with family and friends safely. As a caregiver, you absolutely may feel a sense of sadness, of grief, of loss because a special occasion has changed. So it is important to acknowledge your own feelings and know that you are doing your best. If you or your loved one decide, on the other hand, to, especially now during this pandemic, you might find yourself hours away from their loved one. However, that does not mean that you cannot provide meaningful support. Long distance caregivers can help with practical concerns like setting up appointments or applying for financial assistance. They can also contact with or connect, I'm sorry, with local family and friends to assign tasks that can help with their loved one. If you are a long distance caregiver, remember to take care of yourself as well. Caregiving is not easy, no matter the distance. So it's important to look for local support groups and always give yourself credit for the effort that you're making. And caregivers, primary or long distance, have the right to care for themselves. And even with all the obstacles caregivers face, there are ways to help reduce those feelings of stress and anxiety. On any given day, make time for yourself to do something that makes you feel good, that makes you smile, maybe laugh, and know that this might look different day to day. So don't feel discouraged if what worked yesterday isn't working today. It's important to maybe even create a toolbox um, of different hobbies, exercises, uh, techniques that can help you cope with anxiety and stressors. And self-care techniques that you can engage in include journaling, creating routines, progressive muscle relaxation, deep breathing, and many other mindful practices. Joining support groups or engaging in individual support are also important ways to reduce stress, anxiety, but also those feelings of isolation that you might be experiencing. All discussed previously can also help manage stress and promote caregiver resilience. While I've spent more or most of the time speaking about the challenges or the obstacles that caregivers could experience, I do want to wrap up by talking about the rewards. At times, rewards may feel harder to acknowledge, but they do exist. Being a caregiver can help inspire a sense of purpose and meaning. Um, Caregiving can also build deeper connections between loved ones. But on a broader level, caregiving can also help create positive communication, improve understanding of needs, and often clearer priorities for the caregiver. Rewards of caregiving are not limited to improving the relationship with your loved one. They can absolutely help you learn new things about yourself or about how to interact with the world and the people around you. And i wanna again thank you all so much for having me and I will pass it off to uh Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much um Miss Arati. That was a wonderful presentation um and uh um and now um I'm gonna say just a few words about kids of kiss services um, and uh um so Cancer Care is a national organization. Um, we provide free programs and services to people living with all types of cancers and also f- for caregivers and for people with uh, all types of cancers, like metastatic prostate cancer as well. Um, so you might wonder what exactly are our programs that we do offer. Um, and, um, and so we offer a host of um, different services. Um, so many people call our HOPE line. an 800 number, and um, that number takes you immediately to an oncology social worker who will, and usually people ask a specific question of that oncology social worker. And then once you've asked that question, the social worker usually goes over all the different services we offer. So let me just briefly let you know what those services are. So those services include um, a host of different services uh, from a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers for support. Um, also, we offer practical, financial, and copayment assistance, which is very helpful to people, um, at the, particularly at this time. Always has been helpful, but particularly during this pandemic, it's been very, very important and helpful to all of you. Um, we also offer online support groups on all different types of groups, the so groups for, for caregivers, for caregivers of people with uh, prostate cancer, um, for um uh, also, young adult caregivers, older adult caregivers, middle-aged caregivers. So caregivers of all um, all needs, we offer um, programs for. We also offer programs specifically groups that are specifically for people living with different types of cancers as well. And people like the online support groups because those groups are particularly um, helpful because they don't occur in real time. Like this is on real in real time. They are actually operative uh, 24 hours a day. Oncology Social Worker does moderate the group, um, but to some extent it gives people some freedom around the time. It also allows for more people to be in the group as well and to um, interact with each other. Um, We also offer publications to people, so you can order publications from Cancer Care, and we also offer um, these workshops, about 75 of them per year, on many different types of cancer and different topics, and we also offer um, coping circles, which are smaller groups, which are for people to discuss some of the emotional and social issues that they may be dealing with in coping with cancer. So with that being said, um, we now, uh, before we move on to the Q&A, and by the way, I'm going to be sending all of you, you'll be getting a Survey Monkey tomorrow, evaluation of the program, and in that Survey Monkey, we'll include um, any resources that we mentioned during the program today, including the Hopeline number for cancer care and our website as well, and other information as well, so you'll all have that information at your fingertips um, if you don't already have it. Now, before we move on to the um, to the Q and A, so get your questions ready. Um, we're going to move on right now to some. I'm asking just a few questions um, just before we move on to the Q and A, and. For those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions, and you'll also be able to rate the questions. So the first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to care for a loved one with metastatic prostate cancer in the context of COVID-19 variants. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is: As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of a caregiver on the healthcare team, and how to work with the with and how to how to work with the healthcare team to use their tips to manage a loved one's pain, neuropathy, and discomfort. One is the highest rating, and five the lowest rating. And the next question is: As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of deciding to become a caregiver and the unique stresses and rewards of caregiving. One is the highest rating, and five, the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to manage family, friends, partners, and traditions in the context of COVID-19 and the role of the long-distance caregiver. One is the highest rating, and five, the lowest rating. And the last question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of self-care and stress management suggestions and tips to promote caregiver resilience. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I really want to thank everyone for participating in these questions. Again, it will help us to tailor the programs to best meet your needs, and that's really important. Um, So now um, I'm going to ask um, Sadai to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as
0: possible. Um, and I uh, so will explain to you how to queue up the questions. Thank you, Dr. Messner. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then the number one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Okay. We have um,
1: quite a few questions here already. Um, people have posted. Um so um start with um, let's go through these questions. Um, so um so this is a question uh, for um so this is a question for Dr. Sloven. How do I encourage my husband to go out for walks with me? This doctor has recommended light exercise. Um, and if you could comment on that, Dr. Sullivan, is that an issue that we hear a lot? And...
2: Well, it's it's a great question. It's like, what do you do, bring the mountain to Mohammed or Mohammed to the mountain? And I, I get this quite a bit from my uh, my caregivers, so to speak, uh could be family members, daughters, partners, you name it. Uh the the tact I use number 1 is that uh, any patient who has cancer is very prone to getting blood clots. So the longer someone remains immobile the longer they sit around the house, uh, everybody's new best friend is the computer because you're entertained with it. You can order food. You can shop. You can do everything. It's a, you know one-stop shopping in your, in your bedroom or dining room. But I always tell people that they are at very, very high risk for getting blood clots. Therefore, they should be up and out. Uh, another aspect is that the more you sit, the more fatigue. Fatigued, you get, the more you can leach calcium and foster osteoporosis. We already know that hormonal therapy contributes to osteoporosis uh, and, and significant bone loss, and so the less you do, the worse it gets, and you become uh, really uh, much more osteopenic and osteoporotic. So the tact that I would often tell patients and their family members is that you are increasing the risk of other medical issues by remaining... In house and not being up and active. So I strongly, strongly tell all my patients to please get out of the house. Even if you don't want to uh, be with other people, at least if you have a hallway in your apartment building, go up and down the hallway. If you have a lobby that's not occupied with a lot of people, walk around the lobby. And if you live in an apartment building in New York or have your own home, by all means, walk around the block. You're not going to get sick in any way, shape, or form. If you can do that for at least 15 to 20 minutes a day, maybe twice a day if possible, you really will be benefiting yourself. Thanks.
1: Okay. And another question for you, Dr. Um, um, what, yes. um My husband has been in pain and um, um, and he um, she knows he's suffering um, and he mentioned that his bones hurt. He will be getting radiation beam therapy and perhaps drug treatment soon. Do these treatments have a high chance of helping? If you could comment on
2: that. It's a great question. The answer is yes. We do know that uh, radiation will address pain. In fact, that's one of the uh, major treatments for patients who have pain in the bone. There are radiopharmaceuticals such as Radium-223. It's uh, a drug that uh, immediately delivers radiation two different parts uh, to all bones that have active disease it's usually a monthly injection but if there's one particular area that hurts we very often will give spot radiation to that area in what we call fractions a fraction is just one dose and sometimes it may take 3 or as many as 10 doses in order to alleviate the pain you should not be shy about asking for help with regard to pain management. While your husband is awaiting treatment, he should not have to suffer. Uh, There are, you know, drugs can range anywhere from Tylenol to non steroidal anti inflammatories such as ibuprofen or Aleve, uh, Percocet. I think a lot of times patients do not want to take the medications for fear of constipation and for fear of becoming addicted. And, and let me reassure people that you, 99.9% of patients who are on medications are not going to be addicted to their medications. It's really, there are certain personalities that are uh, very easily addicted. But, you know, if you had somebody on 250 milligrams of morphine uh, who is in pain and you can control the pain through other mechanisms, these patients very often will not stay at 250. They will try to get themselves off drug. So do not allow your husband to languish in pain. Please reach out and ask for perhaps an anesthesia pain consult or the Palliative Care Service who, well, we, we do have pain specialists, and that's all they do, and that would be really very, very helpful so that your husband does not uh, sit there not wanting to eat or can't sleep as a result of the pain. We want people to be functional but certainly never in pain. Thank you, Thank Carol. you so much.
1: Excellent. Thanks so much. And a question from Ms. Aradi um, so i'm overwhelmed with work and the day to day caretaking and medical decisions and appointments for my father. My question is how do, how do I approach my three siblings who are within um, distant within we're all we all within driving distance of each other um, to uh, help out? Um, could you comment on that? I know Mr Soraya, this is a common issue that one one of the one person does all the work and 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 has a hard time involving the others. Could you comment on that?
3: Sure, and, and I hope you all can hear me okay. Um, a, lot, a lot of it is going to go back to that open and honest communication. Um, I was thinking or I was going to ask, are your siblings, um, you know, close by or, or are they long distance? But you did answer that and that everybody seems to be in driving or within driving distance. So it's it's going to be asking for that open and, and honest communication it really explaining to them that you know you need you need their help, um you need their support, and it isn't easy to ask for help, ask for support, um but you can't do it on your own. um you're already feeling very overwhelmed, and if Worst case scenario, right? Um, you know, they're not able to provide assistance or support to you um, for one reason or another. And if that becomes the case, then you know you can also connect with um, a hospital social worker where your um, your loved one is getting treatment. Um, could also reach out to local cancer um, agencies, organizations, to just see if there's any other you know support that that can be offered. But the first step is always that open communication and you know saying i i need I need help um It also might be helpful to maybe delegate um a task or two just to start um being really specific and asking, you know, can you drive to this appointment on you know Thursday at three p m um and start by delegating the tasks and giving a very clear Um, a very clear need to be be addressed by them. That might also be a good way to kind of really, you know, take a step towards including them and getting them more involved in that care.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And could this be a situation where they might want to call our Hopeline and talk with one of our oncology social workers so they could be more specific about all the different nuances that exist in that family so that and, and in terms of to help with delegating or just being a part of a support group or something because it's probably I think this is a common I know this comes up in many of our caregiving programs that people often there's one one sibling who does everything and the others you know aren't helping out
3: absolutely I mean if you're if you're looking for also you know just the, the feeling of not being not being alone right and reducing that isolation um support groups are the place for that. Um, Our, Carolyn mentioned it earlier, but our online support groups are available. We do offer a handful of live support groups as well. Um, Yeah, and the best way to get connected to that is calling our Hopeline, talking with an oncology social worker. Um, It also actually might be um, another service that we offer that actually might be beneficial is is the case management. You know, we do offer that for caregivers as well. And that could be a really great place for you to work with a caseworker just really practically on how to delegate things, you know, the best language and the most comfortable language for you to use. Um, and also maybe, you know, get you connected with other types of platforms um, to kind of you know, enlist support, not only from your family, but also from friends or people in the community.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And I see we have a telephone question from one of our participants,
0: um, um, Sadai. Yes, and our first question comes from the line of Stephanie Kay. Stephanie, you're open.
4: Thank you so much, Carolyn, and you know I love these classes, love them. Um, I want to know something. This is so important. I myself, I have. it's similar to some of the ladies, but not exactly. I am a breast cancer survivor myself, and my husband was so supportive to me 15 years ago and now, of what I'm saying, and I went through a year and a half of chemo and radiation. Now he's going to be going through radiation uh, he's doing some of the things, but not everything. He picks and chooses what he wants so his, to do. So his, I'm sorry. So his radiation yes. treatment is for prostate cancer. Is that right? Exactly. I'm sorry. Prostate cancer. Okay. Uh, not metastasized. Uh, the PSMA was not metastasized. He's had this for eight years, but on watch and wait, and now it's time to and go. And your question? And my and question, question is, he picks and chooses what he wants to do. Like we're going he does mm-hmm. antibiotic. He doesn't want to do the whole go through the whole thing because of side effects. He doesn't want to do the anti-hormones, and he says, oh, I don't think I need it. They told me they haven't talked to me yet. So your question,
1: how can Uh, can help you? What
4: can I do, you know, to intervene, or who can speak to him? Like, you need to really follow the program. He follows some of it, but not all of it, and he is going to start radiation. Thank you. I appreciate oh, thank
1: you. Thank you. Okay. thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. Okay. Thank Not you. to slow it. Oh, thanks, uh Thanks,
2: well, Stephanie. Well, I, I uh, mean, I face this all the time with uh, with, uh, with caregivers, and you cannot mm-hmm. change human nature. Hello. ...hormones, and he won't do it. So, you know, I can paint the worst possible scenario, which I did, and the risks. And I think the only thing that you can tell your husband or if the doctor elects to tell this person is, you know, the pros and cons of what will happen if suboptimal treatment is provided. And once you've done that and it's documented in the chart and you've heard that, that's the best you can do. As I Forgive me for being trite, but, you know, you lead a horse to water, you can't make him drink. And your husband has to accept responsibility. Then on the happenstance that one day he does not follow a doctor's recommendation and some bad happens, he's going to have to bear the full responsibility for it, unfortunately. That's the best I can offer you in terms of advice. Awesome. Thank you. Um, that's very good yeah. advice, actually. Um,
1: and um, on Allison, do you want to add anything to that? Um, I, n- not, not much other than,
3: you know, just reiterating that a caregiver, um, as a caregiver, you know, you are... On the human, um, and we can't make people do something that they don't want to do, so all that you're able to do is, again, just like as just previously stated, you know, offer the important information and then do do what you got to do to take care of yourself. Um, if your loved one makes the decision that you weren't you weren't you know hoping for them to make, just really just take care of yourself um, if that decision is you know, is, is not what you were hoping for.
2: Carolyn, would you mind if I just asked Allison a question because I think it's very relevant sure. she brought she just touched upon a very interesting point that your viewers may may find helpful so Allison, how do we deal therefore with the caregiver's guilt because I think a lot of times when a caregiver cannot execute, pardon, pardon the term execute, but you know, yeah. they can't execute what they feel is the best care ever, and that's how doctors often mm-hmm. feel. Sometimes we all feel like failures when we can't get what we want done for the patient. How do we support the caregiver when they feel that they've failed their their loved one by not getting yeah. that person to do what they feel is the best care possible? Yeah. So um I don't this- know that there's an answer, yeah. but I mean I think you have a lot yeah. of experience that you can help.
3: Yeah, so um when this comes up in my groups and individual counseling everywhere because it does come up, um I always start with there is nothing that I'm going to be able to say to absolve you of the feelings of guilt. Um there is no there is no answer, there is no way for me to do that. Um because the guilt is coming, where is it stemming from? Right, it's stemming from the love and the care, um, and that desire and and want to help and protect and help their loved one feel better. We're not going to be able to get rid or you know absolve of that guilt. What I like to do though is to encourage all the caregivers on on the call today that are experiencing guilt one way or another um, to give yourself that permission to be kind, to be to forgive yourself um, for something that most likely was out of your control, right? Most likely what we're feeling guilty about is out of our control. Um, and reminding yourself that you are doing your best. And I think that's also where connecting, especially connecting with support groups really comes in. Because the, the connection that caregivers can build together, um over these really awful awful things, I mean feeling guilty is, is is a really heavy feeling, but being able to connect to other caregivers that have felt that or are feeling it right now, um yeah, it doesn't give the answer, but you're you're left alone after that, and it it makes that weight feel even just the
1: tiniest bit lighter. Thank you. That's a, um, I hope that all the caretac- caregivers were listening to that. That's really a, a, a helpful thing to keep in mind. And also, being a part of a, a group, obviously you get all of that support from the, all the group members as well. Yeah. Um, very powerful to hear that everybody else may feel, many people may feel as you do. It's something, the power of knowing that you're not as alone as you think you are. Um and um a question um uh, for Ms. Arati. um so my brother is on treatment for metastatic prostate cancer he isn't eating well and we don't live close enough to bring him meals um and he doesn't cook so are there any options for healthy meals um that um you could recommend um mm-hmm. that um that as a resource and and um And'm sure, a case management team could assist with that as well, but if you'd like to make some mm-hmm. suggestions, that would be very helpful.
3: Yes, yeah, so um one would definitely be you know maybe seeing if there's a local like meals on wheels agency around um, or food pantries, food banks um just to see if that's available. I know that you said that he doesn't um he doesn't cook much, but um that might be that might be an option. The other option is there are platforms, for example, like My Cancer Circle um, that Cancer Care um, has a relationship with. And on there, if you do create an account or, like, a, a team, essentially, for your loved one, um, there are spots or, or places in that website. It's, it's free. It's customizable. It's also private, confidential. Um, there are places in that platform where you can have Family, friends, people in the community again who are local to sign up to provide meals um, throughout the week. It might not be every day, um, but but it might be every day, and that might be a good way um, to help him get some of some some meals, some resources, um, or it could also be you know grocery shopping as well um, for him. So. uh, websites like My Cancer Circle would be really great for that, and you can send out that link and that information to everybody who's local to him, um, and then also just, you know, local agencies like like Meals on Wheels, and absolutely something that a caseworker can help with is finding those resources, right, finding the Meals on Wheels, finding the, you know, the other types of food banks or, um, you know, places like that, so a case. Case worker and case management can absolutely be helpful in that too.
1: And we'll send out the link for the um, resources that um, Ms. Arati mentioned to all of you. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, contacting our Hopeline, speaking with our social worker, case management people, giving more additional resources. And my cancer will we'll also give you information about my cancer circle as well, so you can get that as well. So we'll give you all those resources when you get the Survey Monkey. So, um, thank you. Um, and a question for um, Dr. Sullivan: What things should I encourage my husband to do to prevent recurrence of his prostate cancer? He is 79 years old and active. Are there foods, exercises, et cetera, that can help?
2: That's an excellent question, and the short of it is there is nothing you can do other than be mindful of following with your doctor. The indications for recurrent disease can be based on imaging and PSAs, period, exclamation point, in so many words. In other words, you need to follow up with your doctor, because really doing the blood monitoring and imaging is really the best way we can uh, monitor a patient. There are no requisite foods. We always tell patients that a high-fat diet has been associated with prostate cancer. I often tell my patients to monitor their diets in the sense that they have low fat, so fish, chicken, white meat, turkey. If they want to eat red meat, it should be four ounces of a good cut of beef, either once or twice a week. Wine and spirits in moderation. Uh, Although moderation for different patients is is very different. You know, everybody has their idea of, you know, one glass of wine could be six or eight ounces. For another, it might be four ounces. But really, more than four ounces is not particularly salubrious to the cardiac status. So uh, there's a lot of fat in when you drink alcohol. So while having a good diet is very important, particularly for cardiovascular risk, we really don't have anything that I can truly say is going to prevent the recurrence other than really very good monitoring by a physician.
1: So, follow up care um, with the physician on a regular basis.
2: Yes, a lot of times, Carolyn, people forget or they're changing doctors, their primary care physician has retired, and then they're delaying another year or two before they find someone, and then their PSAs haven't been checked. So I, I really wish there was something that would be the, the best way by which we can expect the PSA to return, but we don't. We just have to understand that there's a natural history here that we follow, and as soon as we see any changes that we intercede, a good diet and good medical care will always help you in in terms of really delaying time to relapse, if possible. Thank you. Thanks. And, And
1: if someone does relapse? Um, there are treatments available? Is that correct? Oh, my
2: goodness, yes. We have tons of treatments, and again, it depends on the kind of relapse we're addressing. Uh, It is not a given that if your PSA returns after surgery or radiation, you have to be on hormones for those people who have relapsed with a rising PSA, what we call biochemical relapse. We uh, very often will do some radiation to the area where the prostate has been If you have metastatic disease and you feel one therapy, there are probably more treatments that are available to patients now, uh, greater in terms of the variety throughout their oncologic lifetime. Uh, When I first started in this field well over 25 years ago, I can tell you there was nothing. And now we have so many different treatments, and there's an art to using these treatments. Sometimes being overly aggressive and addressing the PSA every time it goes up with a new treatment is not the way to do it. I mean, a PSA just tells you something is active. It does not indicate how much disease you have. So if a PSA goes from 5 to 10, you don't have twice the amount of disease at 10 compared with 5. It's just. It's active, and it usually portends that uh, that this is sort of a warning that something may change on imaging within the next 6 to 12 months. So uh, anybody who's losing sleep over this, please don't. I used to lose quite a bit of sleep. Now I don't because there's always something that I can pull out of my, my hat. And I would be very uh, forthright and tell you that it's important also to just not use – holistic medications or complementary alternative medications uh, without discussing them first with your doctor because they're not controlled. And number two, they could have potential interactions with just even the most common medications that you might be taking for blood pressure or diabetes, for example.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Um,
2: and um, this will probably be the, the last question. Um,
1: uh, and it's for um So my father has been diagnosed with prostate cancer with bone meds. He tells me he is so overwhelmed and needs someone to talk to. How do I encourage him to join a support group or reach out to others who have experienced what he is going through? Or should I myself be joining a caregiving support group? That's actually a great question. Yes,
4: yes.
3: So when when we want to encourage a, a loved one, a patient, to reach out for support, it it tends to be um, really helpful if you've engaged in support in the past to share, you know, the the experience and what you've been able to take away from the experience. And you can say something along the lines of, you know, I, I had joined um, a caregiver support group and it has given me you know, so much support. I feel really less alone in this experience. I think it could be really helpful for you, too. Um, but past that, there isn't again, this goes back to the conversation that we were having earlier is that we can only offer information and support and resources. But if our loved one is not able to engage in that type of support like a support group or counseling, there that's that there's nothing more that we can do other than continuing to let them know that there is great benefit in reaching out for that type of support. Um, you can also offer, you know, to help look for these resources. Maybe that's part of, you know, the the hesitance to really move forward is I'm already feeling really overwhelmed with this diagnosis. I don't think that I can also put energy into looking for support. Um, so maybe, you know, you can offer offer that help in the research. Um, but that last bit of the question is, of course, um, if if a support group is something that you feel that you might be interested in, I encourage it. Give it a shot. Um, You might love it. Um, If the support group space is not what winds up working for you, that's okay. There are other options. There are peer matching, connecting one-on-one. There is individual support with a professional. Um, So I absolutely encourage everybody who's even slightly interested um, in reaching out to some type of emotional support to give it a shot, um, to see what it is like. And when we're wanting our loved ones to reach out for support, you know, sharing why we think it would be helpful and beneficial, offering support and research um, is, is the most that, that we can do. And just, you know, encouraging them to to give it a shot if, if they might, you know, they might have that, that little interest that you can kind of cling on to.
2: I would just, uh, if I may, just add the fact Mm -hmm. that it might be worthwhile to bring your father with you to your support group. I mean, there there are some men who, because they're shy or they're embarrassed or what have you, are just not – Comfortable with support groups because there's a sometimes there's a wide variety of different men in different clinical scenarios you know there's the people post prostatectomy the people post radiation the people with metastatic and i've actually found that some sometimes this can be very overwhelming in a negative manner to the person who goes there because some people say i don 't want to hear anybody else's problem I just want to hear my problem and that's it and that 's why going perhaps going with bringing your father with you just to get a sense of to see how he, how you are able to enjoy it may be something that may make him want to do it down the line. But sometimes this is not an immediate uh, uh, you know, understanding. It sometimes takes a while for people to make that transition to joining a group. They start to feel more comfortable with their diagnosis, and they're able to, uh, to then join. So patience is a virtue in this case.
3: And and just to jump in, if that is something that a caregiver might be interested in, um, just making, you know, double-checking to see if your group, your support group, is open um, or closed. Um, because some groups, like the groups we have here, um, they they are closed and that we, we, you know, it's just for caregivers or it's specific to patients. So if you are engaged in an open support group that um and also th- there are some organizations and hospitals that offer um patient and caregiver support groups um so both are encouraged um to attend so just want to mention that caveat just making sure that you know whether or not your group is open or closed um if you might want to you know bring your your loved one into the group space to see if it might work for them
1: excellent wonderful this is i have to say although we've done this program before i have to say Um, Our speakers have been phenomenal today, and the questions have been really most amazing questions, and um, and it's it's been a wonderful uh, program today. I want to thank um, both our participants and our speakers. I really want to thank them so much for um, for today's program. And I also want to uh, make a few comments about we have a lot more questions in queue, so we can't take all your questions. Um, So we have many questions that are still not not yet been answered. And even for those, so I'm going to ask all of you, either if you asked a question, have a question yet to ask, or are thinking of a question, that you go back to your treating healthcare team. And remember, your healthcare team consists of your physician, of the palliative care team also. It it consists also of um, oncology social workers, oncology nurses, patient navigators, financial navigators, so your team in your where you're getting your care consists of many different people who can assist you. So we recommend that you go back to that team with and ask them again the question um, that you asked today or that you have yet to ask. Want to ask? And because they know your, they have your medical records. They know the most about you. So that's really a very important thing for you to each do um, to be sure that you um, you get um, the question. Um, specifically tailored to your medical situation. That's really important. And we hope that you have learned things in today's program that make you more informed as you ask your question and as you listen to your um, team, your medical team's responses to your questions. Um, and also, it is, of course, um, and we heard this in many of the questions, that people often feel very much alone in, in with, with dealing with a particular problem um, and with either their family or their loved one or their healthcare team. And we want you to know that you're part of a community of support. And Cancer uh, Care is not the only source of support for you, but we want you to know that um, there are many sources of support for you. And you will be getting a lot of li- listing of, in, in the Survey of Monkey evaluation, of organizations, other organizations that do offer um, types of support that are specific to prostate cancer that are well. Uh, respected organizations. We prefer that you go to organizations that are listed um, by Cancer Care. Um, That's very important. Um, That are listed by other organizations as well. That would be a great resource for all of you. Um, And um, I just would like to thank you all for your participation today, and I want
0: to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop. Everyone, have a great day.